You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 94, War at Sea, the Battle of Turtle Gut Inlet. When we last left the Continental Navy, back in episode 84, Commander Isaac Hopkins had completed the fleet's raid on the Bahamas. After returning, it found itself bottled up in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. The British Navy kept the fleet from leaving. Meanwhile, Hopkins had to deal with a host of criticism. He could not afford to pay his crew. Congress was upset because he ignored orders, going to the Bahamas instead of destroying the British fleet off the Virginia and Carolina coasts. He also ignored instructions to go destroy the British fleet at Nova Scotia. The fact that those orders were insanely unrealistic, even with a navy twice its size, did not seem to enter into the debate. Most of Hopkins' crew abandoned him to go work on privateers. That was where the action was, and where a soldier could make far higher pay and get a larger percentage of any prizes. By the summer of 1776, Hopkins had ships that he could not man, and criticisms that he could not answer to anyone's satisfaction. As a result, he did almost nothing. In truth, privateers were the real naval force for the Continentals for the duration of the war. On a privateer, a crew divided up the full value of any captured ship and cargo. Navy crews received only one-third of the value of the merchant ships and one-half of the value of warships. Further, the Navy often did not have the money to pay even that reduced value. Some privateers earned more than $1,000 on a single voyage. This was at a time when a private in the Continental Army earned $6 a month. The British also did not treat privateers differently than Navy sailors. Under the law, privateers could be hanged as pirates. But I guess sailors could have been hanged as traitors. In practice, when the British captured sailors or privateers, they generally treated either group as prisoners of war. On April 3, 1776, the Continental Congress formally approved privateering and granting letters of mark to privateer ships. Essentially, this granted shipowners and crew free passage to a friendly port where a prize court in cities like New Providence, Philadelphia, or Baltimore could award the capture and allow them to sell their prize, usually at auction. Of course, large numbers of privateers had been operating for over a year, either with the authorization of a particular colony or just acting on their own authority. A continental privateers had to submit a bond to Congress of between $10,000 and $20,000, depending on the size of the ship. The bond required that they operate under certain rules, such as targeting only British ships, not looting the private belongings of prisoners, not killing or torturing prisoners, 
and returning all captured ships to a prize court for formal judgment that the capture was valid and to assess the value of the prize. But compared to a navy, privateering just worked better. New England especially was full of trained ships' crews and merchant vessels. Most of these vessels regularly traveled in dangerous waters before the war and had carried some weaponry to fend off pirates. It often took adding only a few extra guns to make the ship into a formidable attack vehicle. Congress did not have to put out any money for ships or crew. The ships and crew aboard privateers got paid better and more regularly, and they performed the necessary function of capturing British ships and supplies, making life more difficult for the British and providing much-needed supplies for the Patriot cause. In an earlier episode, I talked about the capture of the ship Nancy in 1775, which provided the Continental Army with much-needed munitions for the Siege of Boston. By one count, over the course of the entire war, the Continental Navy had a total of 64 ships in operation, which captured 196 enemy vessels. Privateers deployed 1,697 ships, capturing 2,283 enemy vessels. Privateers captured the bulk of the 16,000 British who were taken prisoner at sea, compared to about 15,000 prisoners captured by the entire Continental Army over the course of the war. Privateers did not limit themselves to the North American coast. They operated throughout the West Indies, capturing British merchant ships trading with their own island colonies. Privateers even patrolled the coast of Europe and England itself, occasionally picking off isolated ships that they could rush back to America. Privateers often acted alone or in small groups. There were no large squadrons of them, and they could not attack the largest warships or fleets. But privateers were so numerous that they continually harassed supply ships and smaller navy patrol ships. This made it difficult for the British to use their smaller ships to patrol the coast and stop smugglers. It allowed private shipping to import roughly 2 million pounds of gunpowder, or saltpeter, an essential component of gunpowder, into North America. Absent this effort, Washington would have been reduced to the use of spears or bows and arrows. Shipping brought in all sorts of other military supplies and necessities critical to the prosecution of the war. European powers, notably the French, Dutch, and Spanish, were willing to sell supplies to the Americans on the sly, but they were not willing to ship it to America. Doing so would be an act of war against Britain but they would ship to their colonies in the West Indies and allow private American vessels to carry the much-needed supplies to America. The work of privateers in this effort was absolutely essential to the final American victory. Washington had also authorized the use of private ships to attack the enemy during late 1775 and 1776. These were not authorized by Congress nor any other legitimate authority. It was also before Congress had authorized any Navy. So many of the ships were manned by Continental soldiers. It may not be fair to characterize them as privateers, but they acted largely independently and worked to harass British shipping in and around New England. When he first took control of the Army, Washington rejected any proposals to mount any challenge to the British Navy. Washington bought into the reputation 
that the British Navy held undisputed dominance on the high seas. If large countries like France could not even challenge the British Navy, what hope did a few colonial merchant ships converted for war have? Some of his officers, though, had captained ships. They knew that, although they could not dominate the seas, they could easily pick off isolated transport ships and even challenge some of the smaller patrol ships. Even if they could not control the Atlantic, they could make Britain's control much more difficult. One of the biggest army advocates for an unofficial navy was Colonel John Glover, commander of the 14th Regiment from Marblehead, Massachusetts. Now, Glover's regiment would play a key role in helping Washington to cross several key waterways during critical battles of the war. But in 1775, they were just another regiment surrounding Boston. Washington, however, noted that Glover kept his regiment in exceptional order and discipline. Before the war, Glover had owned and captained ships that traded with Europe and the West Indies. Many of his soldiers had been sailors who followed their captain to war shortly after Lexington. By fall 1775, Glover had convinced Washington to give it a try and even leased the army one of his own ships, the Hannah, with his son, Lieutenant John Glover Jr., serving as first officer. Washington eventually approved the leasing and the use of eight converted schooners to harass the Navy around Boston and attack any isolated ships they could find. In the six months before the Siege of Boston ended, Washington's Navy had captured a total of 55 ships, the Nancy, captured by the Lee, being the most valuable. Despite successes, Washington's ships sometimes captured ships belonging to patriots. Sometimes the ships were captured mistakenly. Others were recaptured, meaning that they were American ships that the British had captured and then were recaptured by the Americans. In any of these cases, the crew received no prize money. In one case of recapture, the disappointed crew of the Hannah mutinied. Washington had to put down the mutiny, punishing most of the crew with lashes. This was still months before Congress even knew about Washington's Navy and before it had authorized any Navy of its own. When a congressional delegation visited that fall, Washington discussed the problems of running both an army and navy. The delegation agreed that Massachusetts should handle the court hearings for awarding prizes. It also motivated the Continental Congress to finally create its own navy, and that eventually led to the formal navy led by Isaac Hopkins. Washington's navy never joined Hopkins's navy. Washington's ships continued to operate on their own under Washington's command. After Washington moved his army to New York, part of his informal navy continued to patrol around Boston. Although the British had abandoned Boston in March, the navy left a few ships around Massachusetts Bay, mostly to make sure that British transports did not try to land there by mistake and get captured. On May 17th, the HMS Hope, a British supply ship filled with gunpowder and entrenching tools, attempted to sail into Boston Harbor, apparently still unaware of the evacuation. The Franklin, a small six-gun vessel from Washington's Navy, discovered the ship before the British Navy did. The Franklin's captain, James Mugford, sailed up and captured the Hope before they knew what was happening. Captain Mugford then sailed his prize, five times the size of his own ship, into Boston. It was the biggest prize for the Patriots, except for the Nancy a year earlier. 
Now, the British were pretty upset that this little privateer had captured a ship right under their nose. When the Franklin, and an even smaller ship, the Lady Washington, sailed out of Boston two days later, the British sent 12 or 13 small ships containing a total of around 200 sailors and marines. They hoped to board both ships and capture the crews. The British approached, pretending to be patriots, but fooling no one. Both patriot ships began firing on the attackers. The Franklin successfully fended off the boarding parties after intense hand-to-hand combat. Captain Mugford received a fatal wound from a lance as he attempted to chop off the hands of boarders with his sword. Some accounts say the Franklin ran aground, the crew had to escape to land, and form a line of battle to fight off the attackers. The privateers were a major problem for the British, but privateers also lost battles with British ships. For example, a privateer named the Yankee Hero tangled with the HMS Melford. The Yankee Hero had been headed down the New England coast with only a partial crew, hoping to hire more sailors in Boston. On June 7, 1776, the Melford spotted her and sailed to intercept. The two ships engaged in a two-hour gun battle before the Yankee Hero finally surrendered. That meant the British took the ship as a prize and made prisoners of the crew. Imprisonment often meant months or even years on a prison ship, usually ending in death from starvation or disease. Alternatively, crew members sometimes agreed to serve the British Navy to avoid that terrible fate. Privateers and Washington's informal navy were not the only patriot resources at sea. Although Hopkins and most of the Continental Navy were stuck in Rhode Island, several of Hopkins's officers still actively engaged the enemy. One of his captains, John Barry, commanded the Lexington. Around this same time, John Paul Jones received his commission as captain of the Providence. But the Providence was stuck in Rhode Island, so Jones's story doesn't get interesting until much later. For now, I want to look at Barry. John Barry had been born in Ireland to a poor farmer who was kicked off his land while Barry was still a child. He went to sea as a young boy taking a job as a cabin boy. Barry eventually moved to America, where he began work as an officer on merchant vessels between Philadelphia and the West Indies. After a few years, he would captain merchant vessels as he developed a good reputation for running merchant ships. Barry probably adopted Philadelphia as his home because it was one of the few places in the British Empire where he could practice his Catholic faith openly. At the outbreak of war, Barry was serving as captain of some of the largest merchant vessels for prominent Philadelphia merchant Robert Morris. In late 1775, when the Continental Congress created the new Continental Navy, Morris, now a delegate from Pennsylvania, helped Barry get a commission. Barry accompanied Hopkins on his mission to the Bahamas and acquitted himself well. While Hopkins was stuck in Narragansett Bay, Barry kept the Lexington out at sea. On April 7, 1776, the Lexington encountered the British sloop Edward. After a lengthy sea battle, the Edward struck her colors and surrendered. His capture of this warship helped establish Barry as one of the early naval war heroes. Barry sent the Edward and several other captured supply ships to Philadelphia during the spring and summer. His success also drew the attention of the British Navy. In May, two British ships, 
the HMS Roebuck and Liverpool chased the Lexington. The two ships engaged in a running duel lasting all day. In the end, Barry gave them the slip and returned to Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia, the largest city in the colonies, remained relatively impervious to attack by the British Navy. Unlike the other major coastal seaports, Philadelphia was not on the coast. A ship had to access it by sailing miles up the Delaware River. Now, the Patriots had set up a series of alarm posts along the river, most of which had row galleys armed with cannon. These proved surprisingly effective. On a river, sailing maneuverability is limited. These large rowboats could move in any direction to attack a ship. Although they usually only had one cannon and could not easily sink a larger sloop, many of them, used together, could harass and attack any ship that tried to get up the river. Now that's exactly what happened when Captain Barry escaped up the river to avoid the Roebuck and Liverpool. The two ships attempted to follow the Lexington up the Delaware River. A smaller patrol ship, the Wasp, and 13 row galleys attacked the two British warships several miles downriver from Philadelphia. The two sides engaged in a four-hour firefight, during which time the Roebuck ran aground. The Patriots did not have enough men or guns to take the ship. The two British vessels remained overnight until the tide lifted the Roebuck off the sandbar. They retreated back down to a point where the river widened greatly, giving them much better maneuverability. After that encounter, the British did not attempt to move up the river again. Instead, they remained down near the bay where they could intercept traffic that was trying to enter or leave the river. In June, just such a merchant vessel attempted to get past the British blockade. The Nancy had made a run down to St. Croix and St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. She was loaded with gunpowder and weaponry purchased in the French colonies, as well as some rum and sugar. By way of explanation, this Nancy was a completely different ship from the Nancy captured in New England several months earlier. This ship was built in Wilmington, Delaware in 1775. Two British vessels, the Kingfisher and Orpheus, spotted the Nancy on June 28th and began a chase. Unable to get past the British, the Nancy moved north up along the New Jersey coast. Around dusk, a fog settled in and the two British ships lost sight of their target. The Nancy sailed into Turtle Gut Inlet. This was a small waterway between two islands that today make up the Wildwood Beaches along the New Jersey shore. In the early 20th century, engineers filled in this inlet to make Wildwood one long island instead of two smaller islands. But in 1776, the Nancy could move into this inlet between the two islands. Eager to protect his cargo, the captain of the Nancy, Hugh Montgomery, began unloading the ship, carrying the cargo to shore in small rowboats. The crew made little progress getting the cargo off the ship overnight. In the morning, the British ships spotted the Nancy again and moved in for another attack. Also that morning, Captain Barry, aboard the Lexington, along with the Wasp and the Reprisal, arrived on the scene to assist the Nancy. Even so, the two British ships were much larger and had more guns than the three Continental ships. They would not be chased off. The British Navy could probably win in a protracted battle. Instead, the Continental ships 
harassed and distracted the British while sending several of their longboats to help the Nancy's crew unload the ship. The Americans could not keep up the fight for very long. The firefight resulted in one American sailor killed and another wounded before the Nancy decided to abandon its efforts to save the cargo. It had removed about two-thirds of the cargo before abandoning ship. Rather than let it fall into enemy hands, though, Captain Montgomery laid a long fuse down to the ship's hold, still carrying a great deal of gunpowder. They couldn't keep it, but they also would not let it fall into enemy hands. Seeing the Americans abandon ship, the Kingfisher sent a prize crew aboard the Nancy. The British were aboard when the fuse finally hit the powder magazine, causing a huge explosion. A count of body parts after the fact led to an estimate of 30 or 40 British officers and crew killed by the explosion. Although the Americans lost their ship, the battle is widely considered an American victory. The Continental Navy fought a successful holding action against larger British warships and saved much of the cargo. It enhanced Barry's reputation and that of the Navy generally. Next week, the Continental Army surrenders Canada following the Battle of Three Rivers. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to my recommendation... I want to mention History Camp again. I'm trying to see if there's any interest in running a History Camp Philadelphia. For those of you unfamiliar with the concept, History Camp is a one-day event where amateur historians and history fans gather to hear presentations on a wide variety of history topics. For the most part, these are not history professionals. These are people with a passion for history and who have done some amazing research on their own. If you go to the historycamp.org website, you can view some videos of the many presentations given at this year's History Camp Boston. Now, I've lived most of my life in the Philadelphia area, and I know how much this city loves its rich history and that there are many people here who want to share what they know. If you are interested in such an event, please let me know. I'm not looking for any sort of commitment at this point. I'm mostly trying to gauge interest to see if we do put something together for next year, uh, there'd be enough interest in people doing this. I just created a History Camp Philadelphia Facebook page. Uh, I haven't put anything up there yet, but you may want to follow that if you're interested in hearing more as the year progresses. 
If you would be interested in helping organize the event or have any questions about it or any thoughts at all, you can always email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com. Even if you're not interested in going to a history camp in Philadelphia, definitely go to historycamp.org to check out those videos from Boston. You will see some amazing presentations. You may also notice some other history camps in other towns that may be closer or more convenient for you. My other online recommendation this week is the Naval Documents of the American Revolution. This was originally published as a 12-volume set of over 16,000 pages of original correspondence, diaries, logs, and other primary sources from the Navy during the Revolution. It's all available online through the Navy website, but there's another copy that I think is broken down a little better at ibiblio.org slash ANRS slash NDAR.html. And if that's too long for you, I will put a link to it on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. There really is an amazing amount of detailed information in these records. Unfortunately, everything's stored as a scanned PDF of the original books. There is no good searchable database of this information yet. The books are arranged by date, so if you are looking up a specific date of an event, you can search for it that way. Otherwise, finding things can be a little tough. Even so, it's a great resource. So, today's episode took us back out to sea. Privateers were the main force at sea for the Continentals. I talked a little about John Barry, who also began his storied career around this time. If you've ever driven through Philadelphia, you've probably seen the Commodore Barry Bridge, which is, of course, named after him. I suspect more people probably know about the bridge than the man. There's also a really great statue of Barry right behind Independence Hall. I see tourists taking their pictures at the statue and always wonder how many of them really know who that man was. Barry was an important figure in the Continental Navy, but is largely unrecognized today. Of course, even less well-known are the men who served as privateers during the war. The privateer effort is what was able to frustrate the British naval effort. Some historians kind of dismiss the heroism because privateers often had a real monetary motivation beyond patriotism and the war effort. And yes, many privateers were in it for the money. For most privateers, though, their work would never make them rich. Their risk in battle was every bit as great as their counterparts in the Navy, and the punishments, if captured, were horrific. The unofficial service of the privateer was critical to the war and required great sacrifice. And these stories of their exploits are fascinating for anyone who wants to read more. And this brings me to my book recommendation, Patriot Pirates, The Privateer War for Freedom and Fortune in the American Revolution, by Robert H. Patton. In his book, Patton follows the exploits of American privateers not only along the coast of North America, but in the Caribbean and in Europe. Privateers even raid ships along the English coast. And I'll get into some of those in future episodes but the stories of daring really are incredible. Now, the book itself is pretty easy to read, at almost 250 pages, excluding notes and index. The author, Robert Patton, who happens to be a grandson of General George Patton of World War II fame, 
has written several books, although this is the only one involving the American Revolution. So if you want to read more about Privateers of the Revolution, Patriot Pirates is a great place to start. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.